Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, let's uh, find our place in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week. And um, last week we talked a little bit about Jesus and John and the relationship there and the implications of that. But if you recall, one of the things that has been a a theme, kind of a subplot as we move through this gospel, there's always opposition to the gospel, right? Not everybody wants to hear about Jesus. And that's something that we have experienced in life. If you, I mean, you don't have to live too long and the more you make it known that you're trying to live for Jesus and you want to talk about Jesus and you want to tell people about Jesus and the Gospel, the more you do that, the more opposition you will encounter. So here's the thing today as we switch gears from uh, the first 19 verses of that chapter 11 and then move into the last 11 verses today. I I call the message repentance and rest because of the relationship between those two. But here's what I want to introduce just as a, as, as a way to, to maybe form some perspective before we read. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, I've said it up, up here multiple times, actions have consequences, right? And, and I, don't think, I don't think anybody would necessarily disagree with that on principle because that's, that's a, a logical, objective truth. Actions have consequences, Right? But what I wonder is how many people actually don't just hear those words and maybe acknowledge, okay, yeah, that's true. But how many people hear it and then actually process that to to the point that it would affect our uh, decision making or our consideration of what we're going to do? Because you can acknowledge something's true, actions have consequences. Yes, that's correct. They do. But if you don't then take that and apply it to what you're doing, and you just ignore the consequences, then that's no help to you, right? It's no help to to understand that there are consequences for your actions, just knowing that if you're not going to change your decision making. Right? Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is something else. See, wisdom is taking the knowledge you have and knowing how to use it. And if you don't use it, you may as well not have it. Right? That's what we're going to see today. Jesus is going to be very, almost painfully clear about some things and some people and some cities where they had the knowledge, they had the experience, but they failed to apply it and put it into practice. And we're going to see exactly what that looks like today. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. And here's what the Bible says. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done 
because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this, was, this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, speak to our hearts clearly, for Christ's sake, and ours. Amen. This passage of Scripture, it, I'm going to tell you, this, this study in this week has been a challenge. Uh, trying to make sure I understand and then figure out how can I take this and try to relay this truth in a way that's um, accessible and understandable and clear and not confusing. It's been a challenge. But I believe there are three major truths that we can find in these verses that are, that are right there in the text. They're very clear. And I want to try to... Uh, I read a lot of stuff this week and I want to try to, to zero in on some main ideas that will be helpful for us, I believe. The first thing in the text today is there are consequences for rebellion. It's just, I mean, it, it seems almost too simple to even say, but I feel like I need to say it. There are consequences for rebellion. Jesus starts out in verse 20, and He's explaining this connection between revelation and repentance. Now, I want you to think about that. The relationship between revelation and repentance. And revelation, I mean, in this, in this context, I'm talking about what has been revealed. Okay? <clears throat> so the relationship here between what has happened and then what is the response to what has happened. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So Jesus explains there were some cities who experienced miracles and ministry from Jesus. 
right? So you look at verse 20, the very first verse, and you see he began to denounce. So he's talking about these cities, but it's not, it's not a, a positive thing. He's denouncing them because he says, and the Bible even says, look at verse 20, it's, it's clear as day, where most of his miracles happened. So if you're talking about maybe the top three places where Jesus really did a lot of stuff, not just passing through, not just, oh, I'm going to take a little pit stop here, spend a day, but now I'm really going over here. No, no. These, these three places were locations where Jesus did a lot of ministry. Now, now what was his ministry? What, what um, characterized the things Jesus did? He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He taught in the synagogues. And then what else did he do? He healed every matter of sickness and disease. Right? So it was not just, I'm going to tell you some really important, encouraging truth. It was, I'm going to meet your needs, and I'm going to also tell you the truth. So it was a comprehensive ministry that Jesus was engaged in all throughout his earthly ministry. So these three cities are places where a lot of that happened. So there was, no, this is the point of that. Why, why does he even mention that? There was no shortage of information and experience. There was no shortage of understanding what Jesus was about. Okay? It was, it was everywhere. If you had open ears and open eyes, it's almost like you couldn't avoid seeing and hearing Jesus. Okay? So that's important. Because the expectation was for them to respond to the revelation of God's kingdom. Right? Jesus shows up. Can you imagine? Have you ever just tried to put yourself into that time frame? Just in your mind, just think, I wonder what it, been, what it would have been like to just be in one of these cities. And Jesus comes strolling in, and all these things start to happen. I mean, as soon as the first person miraculously gets healed in the street, I'm paying attention, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? What, did, what in the world just happened? That person has had leprosy. Incurable. And all, all of a sudden they're, they're clean. That person's been blind since they were born. And all of a sudden they're seeing. That's a big deal. That's going to cause me to pay attention and to listen. What does this person have to say? Because did you see what just happened? So, the expectation was a response. But here, here's the response. They rejected it. They rejected Christ and His ministry and His message. They still... Did, did, Alright, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus unheal people after they rejected Him? No. Huh. You know what that means? That means, by and large, the people in these cities still benefited from Jesus, His presence and His ministry... They still benefited from Him being there. They just didn't do anything about it. It's like, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Now, alright, go on. Go wherever else you want to go. We got the good stuff from you, but we don't want any of the, of the obligations. We don't want to respond or repent or do anything you think. And, and here's a truth. Leon Morris wrote, this is so beautiful, I wish I would have rephrased it, but I couldn't say it any better than this. People will never advance spiritually unless they take the first step of turning away from the evil they've done. You want to 
I wish I had a spiritual life like that person. I wish I was closer to God like that person. Well, guess what? If, you're, if we're not willing to turn away from our sin, that's just not going to happen. You can't get close to Jesus and hold on to your sin. You've got to get rid of some stuff. And, and, and the more Jesus draws you, the more stuff you've got to let go of. Because you can't be in the presence of God Almighty and think you can just carry your whole earthly lifestyle with you. That's not how it works. What what does Romans 8.28 say? Does anybody know? We know this. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Well, do you know what verse 29 says? The ones He called, the ones He foreknew, He predestined to be transformed. Into what? The image of Jesus. That means the closer we get to God, the more we should look like Jesus. Right? You want your relationship with the Lord to be strong and vibrant and growing, flourishing. Have you you looked at Jesus? Have you considered His life an example? Have you considered His teaching? Have you considered areas in in your life that don't match up with that? Because that's what He's calling us to do. The closer we get to Jesus, the the more we should look like Jesus. But the, the sad thing about these cities in these first five verses is, as Michael Green says, if we are willfully blind, then no miracle can convince us to the contrary. You know, my dad had this little saying. You know, dads have sayings like that. You know, they say stuff all the time. Uh, and I find myself now, I'm saying little stuff like that. And my kids look at me like I'm crazy. But my father used to say this all the time. He said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. I can't force you to believe something. I can't force you to agree with me. And in in this case, if these cities are willfully blind to what Jesus is doing, then no miracle in the world isn't going to convince them. They're dead set on, this is what I'm going to do, and I don't care what happens. So these first two cities, Jesus makes a comparison of Chorazin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were some coastal on the Mediterranean on the west side there, coastal cities, but they were well known, and they were also wicked But Jesus compares and says, he argues that if they would have experienced the same miracles that these two cities would have, then they would have repented a long time ago. And because of that, these two cities are not going to be judged as harshly as these other two. And and that's that's kind of um, an odd thing because it's almost like varying degrees of punishment. You're still being punished, right? You're still being punished for lacking repentance. But that's the comparison. And so, Jesus knows. If they would have seen what you saw, they would have responded. What about Capernaum? This was like one of... That was Jesus' like home base, main area of ministry. He says about Capernaum, they're going to descend to Hades. That's a pretty straightforward, terrible thing. But then look at the comparison. He argues that Sodom, like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the two cities that God burned to the ground because of their wickedness, he uses... Now, don't miss the significance of this, please. Because this city that he chooses to use as a comparison, 
you're talking about the most notoriously wicked city in the entire Bible where God burned it to a pile of ash. And He uses that city to say, if they would have seen the miracles you saw, they'd still be here. That ought to be like, what? You just compared us to them? That, that would have been an eye-opening moment for everybody in Capernaum. They would have been like, they would have been just shocked at what Jesus just said. And so here, here's the thing. What, is, what does Jesus really want? If He's going to talk to these three cities in that manner and compare them to these other places and say, well, if they would have seen the miracles that you got to see, they would have repented. Sodom and Gomorrah would still be here because they would have responded to such amazing miracles. What's He trying to say? What does Jesus want from you? Let's just be real for a minute. What, is, what do you think Jesus wants from you? In life, in belief, in attitudes, in thoughts, in speech, in, in treatment of others? What, what do you think God really wants? He wants to change your entire life. He wants you to be transformed. Go look at Romans chapter 12. What, what does the Bible say? In the, verse two, the very first two verses. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You renew your mind by reading the Bible, by drawing close to the Lord. But you're transformed. That means you're totally different. Jesus is not looking to be an add-on to your life. Did you know that? Jesus doesn't want to be another thing in your life. He wants to be your life. All of it. There, there is no spiritual life, work life, school life, home life. There's none of that. It's just everything is spiritual. Everything. Jesus wants a... A, a, a comprehensive revolution of your whole life. He wants people to change their whole direction away from sin toward God. That's what He wants. And He's worthy of that. So he, here's a sad truth. Being born into a Christian family, being a member of a church, or be, even being a citizen of a country where Christianity is prominent, those are all blessings from God. But it doesn't take the place of repentance. It doesn't take the place of surrender. It doesn't take the place of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. All those things are great, and we should be thankful for them. Did you grow up in a family that loved Jesus? Did they take you to church? Are you in this country where we have freedom to come and gather and worship and fellowship and, and believe in God and worship Him openly? Man, those, do, do you know how much of a blessing that is? So many Christians across the planet that don't enjoy that. And we're blessed to have all those things. But it doesn't mean we don't need to repent. It doesn't mean we get a pass on our sin. Jesus expects us 
to repent when we hear and see and experience all He has for us. You know who's the worst testimony? The saddest testimony of being close to godly things and not repenting? Reminds me, before, before I say it, reminds me of, of Pastor Johnny Slice over at Mount Hermon and what he said one night at a singing last uh, months ago. He said, sometimes you have so much Jesus around you, you think you've got Jesus in you. Can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. The worst testimony in the Bible is Judas Iscariot. One of those who was nearest to the grace of God and missed it. He missed it. He was one of the twelve. He missed it. Jesus wants repentance and there are consequences for rebellion. Number two, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus, in verse 25, gives praise to the Father for revealing Himself. He calls Him the Lord of heaven and earth. But then He says, He's hidden the revelation from some and revealed it to others. And so what we see here is the knowledge of God doesn't depend on your own wisdom or your own education or anything about you like that because it says here in the Bible, in verse 25, that... God has hidden the things from those who are wise and intelligent. So what he means is, if you're arrogant and you trust in your own knowledge, then God hid some things from you. But He revealed them to those, He says infants, He's talking about those who are humble and lowly and who acknowledge the need they have for God. So are we self-righteous? Are we trusting in our own abilities and our own knowledge? Well, then maybe we're not as smart as we think we are. Are we humble and acknowledge our need for God? I need God, for, I need God to take the next breath I breathe. I need Jesus Christ. I can't take a step. I can't breathe. I can't live without Jesus. And, and the moment we think we can do any of this on our own, you think you just woke up this morning? You did that? The Lord of heaven and earth woke you up. It's a, a gift from God. So, God is dealing with a race of sinners to whom He owes nothing. And, and by the way, this is the judgment that John the Baptist was looking for last week. When he sent some people to ask Jesus, hey, is it you or is it somebody else? Because I was waiting for some stuff to happen. I hadn't seen it yet. That, that's what John was talking about. This, this stuff right here, when Jesus is, is denouncing these cities and He's saying, thank you, Father, that you, uh, you hid these things from those who are arrogant and wise in their own eyes, but you've revealed them to those who are humble and lowly. See, God has plans and purposes that are according to His will, His good pleasure. They're well-pleasing to Him there in verse 26. And, and we, we can't make perfect sense of how the Trinity works, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the Bible says, verse 27, God the Father has handed over to God the Son these things to reveal the Father to us. That's, that's what Jesus was there to do. Let me point you to God. 
Because I'm God and I'm going to point... You know, so that's however that works in a Trinity uh, context. That's what Jesus was doing. He was pointing people to the God of the Old Testament that they didn't know. And so Jesus was explaining. He was pointing people, revealing God. And, and, and so God had entrusted all things to the Son, the Messiah. And He even says it, look at verse 27, that nobody truly, comprehensively knows the Son except the Father. And no one truly or comprehensively knows the Father except the Son. And the Son has been entrusted with revealing the Father to humanity. So, this sets up perfectly moving into the last three verses because what's our plea? When we, when we share the Gospel and when we try to tell people about the Gospel and invite them to believe and repent and surrender, what are we really saying? Number three, Come to Jesus. Right? If Jesus has been entrusted with revealing the Father to humanity, it kind of makes sense. What do you need to do? You need to come to Jesus. You need to not just walk. You need to run. Get to Jesus as quickly as you can. When we share the Gospel story, we're sharing the good news about Jesus. Right? So Jesus is the main character of the story and He is the, the victor. He's the hero. He's the one who died on the cross. He's the one who shed His blood. His body was broken. He's the one who accomplished redemption. That's why we run to Jesus. He calls us to come to Him. Look at verse 28. This is why this is, why this is so interesting and why you understand that the Father is entrusting things to the Son. Because the Father has said all these things and done all these things, and then Jesus is talking about the Father, but then in verse 28 He says, Come to Me. Right? He doesn't say, Go to God. He says, Come to Me. Which in effect is, Come to God, because He is God. Right? So He's saying, Come to Me. It's a command. It's an imperative. Come to Me. And who? Who's He calling? I love this. Um, Look in verse 28. Does anybody see a three-letter word that starts with A and ends with two L's? Come to Jesus. Come to me. All. You know what that means in Greek? All. <laughs> there, now you know a Greek word. All. Pantata ethne. All the nations. All the people. Come to me. That's Jesus. That's, that's His plea for humanity. You, you need help? you got problems? Are you weary? Are you tired? Are you carrying a heavy burden? Come to Me! It's that simple. Just come to Jesus. I mean, I don't know if He could be any more clear. Come to Me. Who, Jesus? All. All of you. Come to Me. Who are weary... And heavy laden. Those, those words are so interesting. Um, weary, it's a, it's a participle in the Greek language. And, and it's suggesting people who have become weary because of heavy struggling. Are, are you struggling? Is life difficult? Are you facing some challenges? Come to Jesus. 
And then heavy laden, burdened. It's a, it's a passive um, descriptor which means it's been done to you. You are burdened. You have been burdened. It's like the passive side of becoming weary. You're overloaded. If you, you ever seen you ever seen a um, you ever seen a mule hauling like loaded down with stuff, and and they don't they're not running, right? Very slow and deliberate steps. They're heavy laden. They're burdened. They're weighed down. And he, Jesus, invites all of us to come to Him. And what is His promise? I'll give you rest. You know, you know what you need and want the most when you have worked and worked and worked and you are really, really tired? You know what you long for? Rest. Now you might want some water first. You might want a little something to eat. But what you really want, I just want some rest. Just tired. And that's what Jesus promises. But you've got to go to Him to get it. You can't just keep on in your own little world, in your own little direction, and think, well, maybe He'll help me over here. No, He says how to get help. Go to Jesus. Come to Me, and I will give you rest. Interesting thing about that in verse 28. He doesn't say you can buy it. He doesn't say, if you've done enough work, I'll give it to you. He just says, come to me and I'll give it to you. No charge. I'll give you rest. Man, that's such a great promise. And I think we may have overlooked the importance of that. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. The invitation is extended to everyone who is troubled. All means the invitation is universal. Nobody's omitted from the invitation. Come to me. I'll give you rest. But what does he say after that? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This yoke. It's a metaphor for the discipline of discipleship. So that's why Jesus says, learn from me. Because He's saying, hey, you need to take what I'm doing and you need to, you need to get in touch with, with that, what I'm doing, because you can learn from me. I'm teaching you. I'm helping you grow this discipleship relationship. So He doesn't just say, come to me. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And what, what are we going to learn? Jesus is gentle. He's humble in heart. These are dif- disciplines that we need to emulate. We need to pattern our lives after that. And He promises at the end of verse 29, you will find rest for your souls. He's actually, actually quoting from Jeremiah. You will find rest for your souls. Not just your body, your soul. You know, sometimes we can get so overworked physically, we don't really 
factor in what the impact is emotionally or spiritually. And so we know our bodies are tired, but when our bodies are tired, our mind is tired. Our spirits are tired. And Jesus says, if you come to me, I'm going to give you rest. You're going to find rest for your soul. You know how He does that? What's the source of our salvation and forgiveness? It's Jesus. You want rest for your soul? You want forgiveness for your sins? You want to know you have eternal life? Come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Jesus is inviting people to follow Him, to serve Him, and to learn from Him. Let me, um, yeah, let me, let me conclude. I wrote a bunch of stuff here. I'm not going to read it all. It sounded really good when I was writing it. But uh, let, me, let me just say this. Friends, there are so many people that I want to be saved. Y'all got any of those? People you know might be related to you? I don't know. People that you want to be saved, but are not. I mean, from all appearances, they're not. And many, if not most of them, have already heard the gospel at least once. Right? And some of them have heard the gospel a bunch of times. And it's, it's, this, um, it's a painful but ongoing mystery to me why they won't repent and they won't believe in Jesus. I, just, I don't understand. I don't understand why they wouldn't. And, and who knows the reasons. And if I could convince them to trust in Jesus, then they'd already be saved. But unfortunately, and this, this is the part I really want us to, to process. I want you to think, right now, I want you to visualize in your mind one or more people that you know personally, maybe friends, maybe family members, people that you know personally that you suspect are not saved. That's who I want you visualizing when I say this. Right now, as it stands, because however many times we've told people about Jesus and they still won't repent, they still won't surrender, they won't believe, they are right now walking through this world every day completely unprotected from the wrath of God. Completely unprotected. It's as if they have stumbled out into a, an active battlefield and they don't have the first weapon. They don't have any kind of uniform. They don't have any kind of bulletproof anything. And they don't have anything to fight back. They're just walking helplessly through a battleground. And they are completely unprotected from a wrath that is hanging over their heads that could fall at any moment. And they are oblivious to it. And for whatever reason, they just won't believe. 
And so we all need to take a moment and kind of realize and understand just how serious this situation is. Because if we don't need to just wake up to that truth and understand it. We need to do something about it. We need to be more urgent, more intentional about sharing the Gospel and praying for people's salvation because every breath they take, every step they walk, every where they go, none of it is promised for any of us. Right? For any of us. But I'm not walking around unprotected. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So whenever He decides that my time's up, so be it. But I know, I know where I'm going to be. I'm going to be with Him. But if you're not saved, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you have not surrendered to Him and repented of your sins and trusted only in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you do not have that protection. You're walking through life with God's wrath hanging over you. And that is not where you want to be. This is this passage, even the, the invitation at the end. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. It is truly a matter of life and death. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm, I'm begging you, consider the offer of salvation that Jesus gives you. He has done everything. He died for you. You don't have to do anything except give up. Surrender. That's all you have to do. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good enough. You just have to say yes. But if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ and you're covered by the blood of Jesus, first of all, praise the Lord. Second of all, what are you doing with that? Who are you, who are you telling about that? Who that you know personally, that you care about, is walking around unprotected? How many people do you know that don't know Jesus and for whatever reason you haven't told them about Jesus? You haven't prayed for them? Whatever it may be. Folks, there's a day coming when we will all stand before Jesus and give an account. And I don't know about you, but I don't have, I don't have anything to say on my behalf except for that cross. That's all. And that's enough. That's all I have to say. Jesus died for me. So, come to Jesus. Repent. Find everlasting rest before it's everlasting too late. Let me pray. Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurch.